John Moore, co-founder of NindaTune and one half of Coldcut, is interviewed by the composer and pianist James Heather, who is signed to another of Coldcut's labels ahead of our time. James chats to John about his musical history and focuses on his relationship with ambient music. Subjects covered include talking about the composer Elgar being a family friend, recording strings in Abbey Road, pirate radio stations, working with Steve Reich, ambient music's history and its relationship with NindaTune and much more. John picks his desert island discs of ambient tracks and James picks some ambient highlights from NindaTune. This is an edited version of an original broadcast which aired on James's Moving Sounds monthly show on Soho Radio. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the podcast. Today is a really special show. It's um, focusing on the, the NindaTune label and more on the, the ambient side of the catalogue. Some of my favourite pieces from, from old and new. And we've got a very special guest coming up called uh, John Moore, who is Colcart and co-founder of NindaTune. Um, did you want to say hello, John? I did want to say hello, James. Yeah. Hi, thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, no it's, it's an honour to have you. It's, uh, it's brilliant. So we're going to talk to John later about his history of music and relationship with the, the ambient genre and talk through some sort of classic and new NindaTune songs and his thoughts on those. I wanted to play a couple of Cold Cut songs from their Sound Mirrors album, which I love. They've always held a special part for me, Cold Cut. I think my earliest memory is 97, perhaps, when I got the Let Us Play album on CD. And I remember just before that, I was listening to, as a lot of people were in that period, a lot of rock music, I guess, things like Oasis, Supergrass, you know, I was a teenager. That, that's all good stuff in its own way, of course. But went around a friend's house one night and we listened to DJ Shadow introducing and then I started to research a lot of that stuff and bought Cold Cut Let Us Play and I remember looking at the sort of liner notes in my room and reading a lot of the more political statements and thinking this is this is something else, this is from a different different dimension to what I've known before and like a love affair started with the, with an industry label basically and then I was very lucky to have a very small part to play in the promotion of Sound Mirrors in 2006 I think now. So I wanted to play first off a track called Sound Mirrors, which I'm sure John will tell us about afterwards and how that track was made, and also a track with Mr. Nichols featuring the, the brilliant multidisciplinary artist Saul Williams.
Your dreams of dominance will only help you forsake yourself while your family continues its search for understanding and your daughters outlive your sons. John Moore next to me for one half of Cold Cut with Matt Black. I wanted to talk to you about those two tracks first, if that's okay, John. Cool. So let, let's start with um, Sound Mirrors. Sound Mirrors. And if you could talk about the making, the, the making of it. Well, it started with the loop that starts at the beginning, which came off a Music Concrete record from back in the 1950s, which was, you know, in some respects a precursor to ambient music. I won't mention the actual album because don't want other people sampling it. I actually yeah. can't remember, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> and just built from that, that loop, really, and uh, worked with a guy called Paul Brook, who's an amazing programmer and musician, sadly passed away now. And we developed that track. We did a rough string arrangement. And then we got asked by Bang & Olsen. Bang & Olsen were making a kind of surround sound system, and they wanted a track to go on a DVD. And they um, booked us into Abbey Road, and we recorded the strings on that. Wow. And we got tablas from Talvin Singh. Oh, okay. Who's on there? I didn't and, know that. Oh, okay, yeah, no, Talvin's on there. Talvin we knew from the Blue Note days, basically. So I think it was it 1995, is it, or four? I can't even remember when we released this, something like that, anyway. The album was 90. Uh, what, Sound Mirrors? Yeah. 2006. Two, okay, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm thinking of Let Us Play. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much... But you met Talvin Singh many years yeah, previously. Yeah, we met him in 1994 when we did Blue Note, which is, you know... Uh, early Ninja June club night. Stealth, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I loved his work, so invited him to play on this. And, uh, yeah, then it, we actually used it um, for a soundtrack to a play that we... Mm did with Harry Kunzru for um, Radio 3, a kind of really weird sound collage play, and this was the theme that ran ran through through the whole thing. So it's had quite a few different lives, that track. So it's almost like a genesis, uh, like a precursor to the album that came after it. It was the, one of the first tracks yeah. made. Yeah. yeah, even the name Return to the Margin, which is a, a thing that a typewriter an old school typewriter with keys and stuff when when you you hit the return to the margin to take it back to the beginning to write a new line so yeah. that was wow that's amazing that drill yeah yeah we we sampled <laughs> drill actually <laughs> on a dj food um album that we did called drill driller killer good track so it is a big drill sound it yeah. is a wicked sound so yeah that, <laughs> that's return to the margin so you know it has quite a a lot of meaning and um, I think actually Phil France was on bass on that as well. Well, from Cinematic um, Orchestra yeah. at the time. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, um, nice to hear. I actually haven't heard that for quite a long time. 
Oh, that's nice. And yeah, I think you said you went to Abbey Road to do a 24-piece string section. Yep. I mean, what was that like? It's just amazing, you know, amazing experience. We'd actually done a section previous, but not a 24-piece. I can't remember how the size was. We recorded strings at Abbey Road for Autumn Leaves. Of course, yeah. And, um, you know, so I had some experience of recording strings. It's just... Abbey Road is, is a historic and magical place. You yeah, know, there's something about it. I got to tinkle on the piano that I think oh, uh, the Beatles played I'm on very many times. And, you know, uh, the guy that was the studio engineer for the session, white coat, pencils in top pockets, you know, proper kind of old school feeling. And um, it's fascinating to see from a technical point of view how they mic'd it all up. But ultimately, the sound of the strings is the sound of the room at Abbey Road. And yeah. I was saying when we were off mic about how many film soundtracks, the strings are recorded there, well, the whole soundtracks are often recorded there live. So it's sort of embedded in the DNA of people who love music or films because yeah. they've listened to that sound of Abbey Room, the room. You know, they've heard it without yeah. knowing. Yeah. yeah. It's like everyone's recorded there, like all the big people, basically. All of them, as I say, even yeah. including um, Margaret Thatcher. So she recorded there? Yeah. I'm not sure if it was a musical thing or just speeches. Yeah. Some kind of... She really got into the Beatles or something? Or? I don't know, no. It's probably just some fascist diatribe <laughs> that she wanted to do. <laughs> oh, cool. Um, and then Mr. Nichols from, actually from the... I should have played Autumn Lees, actually, but... There um, you go. Mr. Nichols, yes. featuring Saul Williams, yes, who had been on a previous Ninja Tune compilation, I believe, Zen Cuts. Yes, that's right. So yeah. you had a relationship with him already, I assume. So how did that track come about? And did you, very powerful, moving lyrics. Maybe yes. you can talk more about what it's about, or did you, did you give him any direction? How did that all work? So um, the track... Again, I recorded it with Paul Brook, and Matt and I recorded it with Paul Brook, and we did it in an afternoon. So, in a in in Leamington Spa in Paul Brook's studio, actually with the windows and the doors wide open, it was a beautiful sunny day, and just built that. You know, the drums sound in there is all made from tapping guitars and wow stuff. So there's you know samples of guitars in there, and. Um, we tried, I think, for ages to... It was like, this isn't right. You can't just make a track in an afternoon. What's going on? So we tried, you know, lots of different things, different recordings. Couldn't get anywhere with it. And then thought of Saul Williams, who yeah. Matt and I absolutely adore. You know, we love spoken word. We've used spoken word in our music and in our radio shows for years and years and years. So we sent it over to him as a backing track with no brief whatsoever it's like here you are Saul do your thing you're Saul Williams we trust and he came back with an incredibly powerful yes piece and as I say the one line that really resonates for me out of all of the lines which are all very strong is only the birds fly first class which is you know so simple and so beautiful but actually when put like that becomes very profound yeah yeah, that's they, I remember that lyric was the one that stood out to me at the time as well. So it's, it's and yeah, it's a, a great piece. And Soweto Kinch does the little sax at the end, it comes solo in. at the end, yeah, um, which does 
sort of really lift it up and, and finish it off. And um, there's quite a dark video that goes with it. Yeah, it was um, it was about suicide. The video, I believe. Effectively, yeah. And yeah. again, an unusual tale of, 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 of a strange world of, of how things happen quite randomly, but actually quite beautifully. So we were looking for a video for yeah. it. We commissioned various people. We had quite a few briefs. And then this video had been made for somebody else. Yeah. And it was too, too dark for mm -hmm. them and came in and I synced the track across it and it just fitted perfectly and, and it seemed appropriate sometimes i get messages wrong in music because we all take what we want from it, every mm -hmm. song so but i believe this to me anyway he's talking to mr nichols in the track about yeah. not giving up yeah it's about staying alive yeah. you've got all this stuff around you so yeah it's a, it's a hopeful message ultimately it is i mean like a lot of hopeful messages they often come encased in quite a sad structure yep. as it were and you know i like that melancholia i it appeals to me and uh so yeah the video has a businessman who feels an out, like an outsider who's obviously not happy with his life who tries to commit suicide but is saved by his family and his son yeah. and ultimately everybody comes out of these flats and helps him and that's really what life is about there's people there to help you then but they're, they're absolutely continue. brilliant tracks and they're they're all-time classics to me thank you very, very much. special so yes yeah, so I, I mean i've got to say it's quite intimidating being sat next to you doing my third <laughs> show ever when i mean you were a founding member of kiss fm when yes. it was a pirate in the 80s yeah you you've been at the helm of the longest running mixture of all time solid still you sat on the I'm on my third show here and I don't even know what, what one knob does in the other one. And You <laughs> don't have to worry. You've probably forgotten more than I even know, so it doesn't really matter, you know? I used to love John Peel. I quote often him. And, you know, he he was a brilliant DJ because it was, you know, warts and all, effectively. He would sometimes take the wrong record off <laughs> yeah. while it was playing. And, you know, we all do it. So, in a way, that gives character you yeah know, to 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 what you're doing and i feel like that side of your story has been told a lot in terms of kiss fm solid still more club culture stealth the early ninja tune nights everything to do with cold cut and ninja tune and and that's 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 great i, I don't want to go there too much today because i'm more want to explore your relationship with the ambient right. music genre yeah. yeah which i mean obviously was a, a big part of that era and it's still a big thing now i know listening to interviews with you you used to go in the late 70s or early 80s to high wickham to lots of punk nights yeah and with adrian sherwood yeah were you also equally as passionate about um the ambient genre at the time or were you like a punk basically um well i, you know, I was into i was 20 in 1977 I think yeah <laughs> and so it was a perfect age for a perfect musical storm and I was at High Wycombe Art College High Wycombe was a very creative sort of hub at the time Adrian Sherwood from New Sound lived there there was music going on regularly lots of amazing bands playing and so you know I adored music and mm -hmm. spent when I wasn't making art, I was listening to music. And there were things then that were ambient, but I didn't really 
no, they weren't really called ambient yeah. as such. So it was a band that I used to love called Throbbing Gristle. Yep. So before they were Throbbing Gristle, they were called Coombe. And they were a bunch of very odd art oriented people. So Genesis Piorridge, Cozy Fanny Tutu, and, and several other people. And their music was called industrial music. So eventually kind of ended up influencing what was, became a genre called industrial music. Mm-hmm. And, but they did make ambient records. And um, I love them. I went to see a lot of their gigs. And, uh, you know, they were in equal measure shocking exciting so there was that then Brian Eno obviously um, you know uh, probably wears the crown when it comes to ambient music and may some people may say that he actually coined the term in some respects yeah but um, you know he he came out of a fantastic art school band Roxy Music another band that I used to go and see and added a sort of otherworldliness to their work and some of their records aren't necessarily really in the genre of ambient music but they contain many of the of the things that yeah ambient music is so i love them as well yeah i'd like to explore a lot more about your early early growing up and some of your early memories of more ambient music but i also want you to be able to play a few songs today maybe some of your favorite ambient songs not necessarily on the industry catalogue just stuff you like so uh, have you got something to play i've got one lined up which um is global communication which is mark pritchard and tom middleton mm-hmm. and um so 1994 possibly 12 inch single with uh, this amazing track called maiden voyage also actually is a fantastic funky sort of track called funk in the fridge i think um but maiden voyage for me is just such an amazing track and you know we would play that in clubs that we did big big chill the ambient club yes you know this was a massive hit for want of a better word and he'd, he'd come up he'd come up with um he was from a similar place to Aphex in Cornwall, I believe. Tom I Edison. think so, yeah. Sort of, yeah. they went on different musical paths in the end, but yeah. they came from the same sort of bucolic world. country sound. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's uh, that's always been a thing in 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 British music as such. You know, you think of Elgar. I don't know if you know Elgar. Of course, so yeah. Wonderful classical musician who uh, I think lived in Morven, which is where my parents are from. So my dad was a massive Elgar fan. And actually Elgar wrote a piece of music based on my mum's maiden name, which is Gedge, G-E-D-G-E. So unusual surname in as much as it's a musical progression. And he was so fascinated by yeah. that when he met my par- my grandparents that he wrote a piece when Elgar met your grandparents yeah yeah because my grandfather was the chemist in Morven at the time that Elgar lived there I find something new every time I meet you (laughs) wow um, so you know it's weird from (laughs) Tom Middleton to Apex Twin to Elgar but it's it's a classic British tradition of of what I call bucolic music or countryside music effectively yeah okay let's 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 hear this one it has a very slow start, but then that's like a bit of all of us in the morning. So here we go. Yeah. 
was global communication, global communication with Maiden Voyage. That's right, yeah. A uh, classic. Class- yeah, total classic. So, so John, uh, I wanted to talk to you about... Yeah, you grew up in Tame? Tame, near Oxford, yes. Yeah. Uh, so any childhood memories of mo- the more ambient genre in any way, shape or form? Um, How did your love for music start? Uh, probably by my grandfather, actually, who lived in... I've talked about him a bit earlier, but lived in Malvern. Elgar's mate. Elgar's mate, yeah. yeah. And... I, we used to go and stay there, and up in the attic was a record player, and he had like a whole bunch of 78s. And there were two that I remember, one of which had two tracks in it. So depending, you put the needle onto the record, so one time it would play one thing, and then you put it on again, it would play something different. And I was, you know, as a child, I was always fascinated by how did they manage to get two different pieces of music onto one slice of, 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 of vinyl, well not a vinyl, 78s, I'm not sure what they're made out of actually, but, um, and then Sparky's Magic Piano, mm-hmm. which was a kind of story, but um, a classic story, you can look it up if you want to, I won't go into the details, but an amazing <laughs> story, and so though, that was kind of my start of my love of music, and then my dad's brother, my uncle Jack, lived in Nigeria, and oh. He knew I liked music, and so I said to him, well, send me some Nigerian music. So he sent me some amazing Nigerian seven inches, and um, just grew from there, really. You know, I remember my dad went to Russia, and he bought a seven inch of Yuri Gagarin, who was the first man in space, like a Russian seven inch, which I've still got, wow. of recordings of Yuri Gagarin in space. And in, you know, you could say that's sort of ambient because yeah. it's just like weird noises and stuff, and static and space noises, and and then um, Yuri Gagarin speaking in Russian from time to time. And you know, I I just started. I just loved music, so you know, Jimi Hendrix was yep. a big influence. So not not quite ambient as such, but you know, some very lush productions and. Um, amazing virtuoso guitarist, obviously, and all different things. And I would look things on these records, like there was a band called Traffic, who were kind of interesting rock band. Steve Winwood, I think, played flute with them, and, and they they had sort of a weird semi-ambient track. So I was always on the lookout for things like that. Um, you know, got into punk, got into post-punk, got into. African music, then Latin music. I just go yeah. down these, travel down these wormholes, you know, find an artist that I liked and then investigate them. So, you know, there'd be all different types, but there was always some ambient music there. Yeah, I'm always interested in people's relationship to ambient music because I think sometimes it gets a bad rep as being, say, background music or dinner table, dinner party music, where to me, um, the best ambient music it's got so many more layers than that and it's something to be listened to you know in quite a lot of detail there's there's just as much going on it's just not shouting at you so much yeah absolutely so, and, yeah you know i think all genres as they progress people come along and they take that idea and they can take it in different directions and one of those directions is to a bit like a photocopier mm. is to kind of continually copy it to the point that it becomes devalued 
So yeah. you think of um, you know an artist like Picasso, his original work's amazing, but his influence as it was copied over and over and over again kind of devalued his, his work to a certain extent until you actually go and experience it for real in front of you in, in a solid yeah. human interaction with that form. And it's the same with, with ambient music. You know, it's an incredible form of music because it gives your brain room to make up its own mind. You know, and in a yeah, way, radio no, is no vocals. Not, no. not so much. You know, no. not as many vocals. It's, I, you know, a lot of people talk about ambient music. Is Sati, the yeah. composer, started it in with some works he had done in 1917 in quite an artistic, contrary way at the time. It was, he called it furniture music, yeah. I believe, and and then obviously Brian Eno contemporized it with music yeah. for airports. But what I was curious is, like, what is ambient? Like, surely music that's more meditative and relaxing didn't start in 1917 people before the year of 1917 were obviously listening to relaxing music which was also highly detailed as well surely yes i think you know there's um the singing bowls the sort of healing bowls and that, that form of music um there's gong music chameleon music mm -hmm. um that can have a similar sort of ability to take you to another another place you should update the wikipedia page for ambient music <laughs> <laughs> i'll get on it i think architecture i've always postulated this theory which is you know could be completely wrong but architecture and music have an intimate relationship that's not given enough kind of um discovery and credit so for example a big room a big church for example has a lot of reverb natural reverb in it and so if you play one note it's going to last for quite a long time or if you sing one 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 note it's yeah. going to last for have quite a long, long tail it's have a long tail exactly yeah. so um that led to a, to a form of music because you you couldn't have short notes because they would start mm. to to clash or you couldn't run not that you couldn't have short notes but you couldn't play notes too close together because then they would could potentially interfere with each other mm. unless you play the correct ones which would then build up effectively what was a drone so probably quite a lot of what they call liturgical music so sort of um, religious music that was sung in churches could be considered to be a form like of a Gorian chant. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, so you know that could be considered a form of ambient music in some respects. And then as architecture changed, you know, and musical instruments changed with it. So particularly again religion. So when churches became smaller and sort of Georgian churches was much smaller, you had things like the harpsichord, which were lots of short notes, which sounded a lot better in a smaller room with a sharper, mm. smaller reverb, effectively. So anyway, that's one <laughs> potential idea. You know, and artists particularly, like fine artists, have always been interested in, I think, ambient music and experimentation. And, um, you know, Sarti was part of, I think some people would argue, part of a, what was called a Dada movement, yeah. so an Italian movement, which, you know, was particularly prevalent before the First World War. And sadly, a lot of the artists involved in it were killed in that war. Mm. But their musical legacy still runs through me. Um, you know, through through us and through many different artists. I mean, talking about sort of ambient legends, um, Steve Wright. Yes, I believe we're gonna we're gonna play a song by Steve Wright. I think we can't have a ambient show 
without playing a track from his. So, Correct. I mean, you actually worked with him at some point? Or? We did a remix for him yeah. of music for 18 musicians, which um, was quite a task. But um, we did it and we remixed it and then we performed it at the Barbican. And um, yeah, it was amazing. And he's just a wonderful creative man and you know the sort of minimalist classical music um, is definitely his creation his baby and he I'm sure if he he was being interviewed he'd give his own personal roots and describe where yeah. those ideas came from but again it's a seriously meditative experience but the track that I've chosen um, some people might recognize um, electric counterpoint yeah, they I may recognise it from a from a um, a, a, um, a band called the Orb. Yeah, as someone who wasn't around at the time so much when that was, when I try and find that song, there's a lot of versions of it. Yeah, is that, like, is it? There's obviously a good reason for that. Like, of of the of Electric Counterpoint. Yes, yes. I mean, it's the whole album and each track. So yeah, sort okay. of Yes, like you know, classical music comes in parts quite often, and and you know there's. It's like a story. There's the introduction. Yep. There's the, the meat of the story. The conclusion. The the end. It's like a symphony, almost. Like a symphony. Yeah. So you know that I suppose is from his classical music practice. But this version, which is version number three, I think, is um, is the one that the orb used on Little Fluffy Clouds. Yeah, and not the length of a symphony either. No, four for, minutes forty-two. Fortunately, a short version. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> music for eighteen musicians in its entirety is like twenty-five minutes long. Yeah. I did actually play that. I was on a pirate radio station for a while called Network Twenty-One. Mm-hmm. So it was pre-Kiss FM. Wow. As a pirate, and it was out there and arty, and I played the whole of uh, music for eighteen musicians on the radio, which you know at the time was considered a, a little bit bold, bold yeah but you know i'm happy to do that great Let, let's hear it
That was Dee Wright with Electric Counterpoint. So, John, I wanted to maybe play a few Ninja Tune songs from back in the day, from the more ambient side. And I was curious, you you obviously made Autumn Leaves back in the day, and in the clubs there was a lot of chill-out rooms at the time. Ninja Tune is a broad church doing many different genres coming from the underground. But what's Ambient's influence on Ninja Tune as a whole in its genesis and its sensibility in general, even when the tracks aren't Ambient? Do you you think there's a strain going on in going in the music? Yes, I think, you know, there's a, you could say there's a drone that runs (laughs) all the way through. Um, You know, the whole chill out thing, um, which unfortunately now has got a, a kind of bad rep in terms of a name in the same way that actually trip-hop became like a, a, a bad word when it shouldn't have because it, it was also an amazing genre and ambience and trip-hop had an interrelationship. Yeah. Um, clubs like Mega Triplets that we'd, we'd play at which were amazing because there'd be a room where there was politics being discussed, there'd be a room where there was you know shirts off backing techno <laughs> and then there'd be the chill out room with us and Matt in particular, Mixmaster Morris, um, Kev folks from DJ Food uh, and you know K- KLF at the time KLF, sort of yeah, you know, mixing them a little bit yeah yeah there was a lot of people out there that, that were doing things along that genre and you know it was the introduction of visuals into clubs that were more than just kind of crazy lights and lasers and stuff like that so actual yeah. edited film and footage that was mashed up together so you know it laid the roots for a lot of things that we still see today obviously today they're kind of pumped up on technology and money but um, you know those clubs were very important for us the, the, the ambient club you know, the big chill that I've mentioned before and various other ones where, yeah. where that was appropriate and then those DJs were really important as well yeah I was going to play a couple of songs I was going to play cinematic orchestra and I was going to after that actually play a song by a newer ninja tune act called Bicep yes. and I, I think they draw a lot from ambient I mean, it's a bit more banging at times, which is brilliant. Obviously, I'm going to play a track called Drift, which is one of the more relaxed ones on the album. Yeah. But going back to, to Cinematic, Jason was working at Ninja Tune, right? Yeah, Jason worked for us. He was doing, I think, International. Yeah. And, um, you know, like a lot of actually people that work at the label, they have their own side thing. Side yeah. hustle, I think it's <laughs> called in young people's terminology. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, Jason was doing our international stuff, which is great for an artist to actually work at a label. Then you get to understand a lot more of what's important and what things that you need to do and how, how the whole system works and, you know, how as an artist you can actually make that happen a lot easier in some respects yeah. if you have an understanding of the business and how and how that business works so yeah lovely guy jason wonderful guy and i don't know quite how he presented it now but the, i've got this feeling that he just came in one day and said i've done some music do you want to have a listen and it's like yeah that's good and it, you know it's a sort of mixture of ambient textures and and, and jazz and drawing from the jazz a lot yeah. i feel yeah yeah 
and moving moving things on so you know the the sort of traditional hip-hop stroke sampling thing yep. that would influence a lot of the artists including ourselves on, on Ninja but taking that in a different direction and you know amazing band and brings tears to your eyes the beauty of their music.
bicep and drift. We were just talking off mic. The, the Steve Wright influence is quite prevalent there, would you say? It is very, very prevalent. Yeah, it's fascinating how, how that uh, minimalist ethic has uh, pervaded through dance music. It's fascinating. I'm often finding examples of that influence. And it's understandable. I, I also love Philip Glass, who's another one mm. of that um, um, genre. And I remember going to see him at um, South of Wales, I think it was. And it was, ma- I wasn't expecting it to be like super loud, like a rock concert loud. Mm. And it was just incredible. And uh, I can see why it influences people because it's melodic, but it is repetitive, like a lot of dance music is repetitive but shifts or phase shifts in time so there's micro incremental movement like i was saying earlier it's so much more than background music because of the the subtle detail going on yeah and the evolutions in 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 the music that's what keeps the brain occupied in you know we kind of like repetition humans we do you know we like things that circle around each Mm -hmm. other but then change and so Obviously, the human um, element is quite important. I'm sure that goes back to early, early music, you know. Yeah. As well. Yeah, absolutely. So we're sat in Soho here, and it just dawned on me, actually, mid-song there, that you you were working in Reckless Records. That's right, which is still here. In the 80s, which is round the corner. Berwick Street, yes. And before, because you haven't always been in music, you were... A 3D design teacher or craft teacher? I was, yeah. So I went to art college and I studied three-dimensional design. So yeah. I got a degree in um, silversmithing, ceramics and furniture. Yeah. And then I went to post-grad and um, did a teaching certificate. And uh, But in, in between those, I worked um, at Reckless Records selling records that was your sort of link to music yeah you know era. i loved records i'd buy records in fact i probably worked for reckless records and took uh, you know you could either take cash payment <laughs> or records and i think it was a rare week when i walked out of there with any actual money in my pocket rather than a big bag of vinyl and you know that was where i met matt so he was working again around the corner. So Matt, the other half of Colcart and yeah. Cohen and the June founder, yeah. Matt Black. Matt Black. Yeah. So he came in and I sort of knew of him. He knew of me. You know, he was a very good scratch DJ and a very good mixer, computer programmer. And uh, he brought in what was effectively um, our first record, which was Say Kids, What Time Is It? So um, a mashup which um, you know, was a homage. We, we bonded over Double D and Steinsky, an mm-hmm. amazing cut-up artist. Pioneering, sample-based artist. Yeah. Lessons 1 to 3, which yeah. are incredible pieces of work. And um, you know, we were one of the very few people who were foolish enough to pay £40, which in 1989, maybe 1988, was a lot of money for a record. Um, for those records, because they came out on a, a kind of club-only release, Disconnect, it was called. I remember there was, again, another shop, which was like a high-energy shop that had it in stock. I couldn't get it anywhere else, and they got one in, and I went and bought it. I was so excited. <laughs> Ridiculous. But, yeah, I met that Matt there. He brought in this tape, 
I, I just took the decision. We played it in the shop there and then. And, um, you know, I just thought, Jesus, this is amazing. And so we got together. And so at that point, you were still a teacher? Yeah, I was and teaching you were start, part-time. And you were DJing. Yeah. Uh, your DJing career was going up. Yeah. Didn't you bump into the Kiss FM founder? In a, he was a taxi driver. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I had Gordon. Sh- Gordon Max. I had a show on Kiss FM, so... Um, I was running a club called the Meltdown Party, which yeah. was in a warehouse in Rotherhithe. And so when the GLC, which was the Greater London Authority, I think, something like that, so they were they got disbanded by Margaret Thatcher because she didn't like the fact that Ken Livingston was in charge and it was a fairly left-wing yeah. organisation, though it was amazing because they just put on millions of free concerts and they put money into the arts and it was a really fertile and productive time and they were very supportive. But when she... Um, disbanded the GLC this venue at Rotherhithe there was a kind of grey area like who owned it who ran it the people that were there just kept it open so I started doing parties there Mm. and I booked a taxi to take me there and Gordon was the driver and we were chatting and I told him what I was doing and he said well I do this station Kiss FM and I knew this guy Nicky Holloway and I actually knew that Nicky was going to give his show up and he'd already told me it's important to, to note to anyone who may not know, Kiss FM was a different beast then. It was more pirate, left field. It it's was not very the, uh, the history, yeah. the history station we hear now, which is also brilliant in its own way. Yeah, like, you know, it's, it's a classic story of, of a bunch of like-minded people starting a business, which is what it was really, mm-hmm. and that business being incredibly successful, and eventually being taken over by a corporate entity for yeah. better or worse or for a different kind of experience but yeah we, it was unplaylisted it had some of the best DJs or pretty much all of the best DJs in town on it and you bumped into one of your pupils when you were DJing once that's right and yeah. then that, I think that's when you thought I need to do this full time yeah I was DJing a party <laughs> and it was like five o'clock in the morning and and this lad comes in sir what are you doing here yeah and that was right, it. And I then Ninja Shoon you know, came out of that. So yeah, so thanks, thanks good, to that people. A good, uh, a good journey. Well, I'd wanted to, to to push it to the next level, yeah. but you know, sometimes you need a little kind of tap on the shoulder to remind you that this is what you need to do. So uh, what's what's next in your um, Desert Islandist of Ambient songs? So I'm going for a track uh, from David Sylvian. Who, this is a solo track from him, and uh, I love Japan. They're an amazing band, and I like David Sillian, but actually my partner, Sabronia, reintroduced me to them in a way, because mm-hmm. I'd kind of, like you do with some acts that you love, and then you just sort of forget about them, or anyway, she reintroduced me to them, so I dug out some of their records, and, and this, this is one of them.
Castle in Dream Theory, one of John Moore's some cold cut choices. Uh, John, can you tell us any more about that track and why you chose it? Uh, I I just love what John Hassel does. So, he, you know, he samples, effectively, he was a sampler or sampling musician before really sampling was invented. So, again, another artist that was influential on me. And... Um, he plays all the right notes, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so, I just love his music. It's got lots of texture. It's hypnotic, you know. And um, I'm not sure much of his history. I've got a strange feeling that he comes from Lewisham, which is interesting for people who live in London. But that's about it. <laughs> without looking him up, he's actually just got a new album out on Warp Records, which is really, really good. So I can highly recommend that. Oh wow. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll be putting all these tracks on... I've got a Moving Sounds playlist on on the internet. Spotify, Apple, Deezer, etc. So I'll make sure I, I put all these tracks up there for people to listen to. So DJ Food. Yes. What's that all about? What's so that, 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 that about? was a, like a pseudonym for Cold Cut. Yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a favourite of mine, The Crow, the Funk Confusion version. Okay. So if you could sort of d- d- explain... A brief history of DJ Food. food. Yeah. Yes. Well, um, when Matt and I left, the record label that we were signed to when we first started Ninja, we weren't able to put out records under the name Cold Cut because of contractual issues, a classic um, pop industry issue with a lot of artists. And um, so we invented a whole bunch of names and DJ Food was one of them and literally it is food for DJs. So the idea was these were like breakbeat albums. So again, in dance music genre, there'd been a history of records that were put out that you could use to make either other records or in the club to mix and so we started this series called dj food and it was me and matt and paul brook again who i spoke about earlier and um you know they were sometimes called jazz breaks as well so and we did these volumes and they very sample heavy and meant for djs to be able to mix with but slowly that thing like a lot of things that Matt and I have done kind of develops into something else so PC Patrick Mm -hmm. Carpenter came along wrote me a letter I think and became an engineer and then started working on the DJ food stuff and started playing quite a lot of the tracks and collaborating with me and Matt and then Strictly Kev Mm -hmm. another member he uh, was in this collective called Open Mind. He's a stunning graphic artist, and we call him Strictly because he was Strictly on the nail every yeah. time, and a brilliant DJ. And he became part of the collective, and eventually, actually, Matt and I stepped back and 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 sort of passed the baton on. I can hear in this bass that we're hearing now coming in, and the track as I gradually turn it up is sort of. I can hear cinematic, like a bit yeah. of Phil France in the bass. I don't think it's him playing, but you can hear how it, the music of all through the eras in the Indonesian history. Yeah. yeah. Like to me, I can. It's, it's interesting when you go back, you know, and go through the catalogue. At the time, you probably don't make those connections necessarily, but actually, when you listen back. It's the mid 90s, right? I think. Yeah. 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 I think this was 2000, actually, this one. This version? Yeah. I'm not 100% sure again, but. Uh, yeah, hazy. Well, you know, dates and times <laughs> and days aren't necessarily important to a musician, man. <laughs> Great, well, let, let's hear the uh, the Crow Funk Hung Vision version by DJ Food.
kind of do steps so you, you'll put them up and put them down and come back up and I'm going to catch the action. Even right here when you're about to move it, you spread them out. So, on three, one, two, three, go for it. Good, good. Yep. Lee Bannon with Artificial Stasis on the Ninja Tune label. So I just wanted to wrap things up, John, and thank you so much for coming down. A thank massive, massive honour. What have you got coming up? <laughs> well, Matt and I are working on a project that we've been doing for nearly, well, we've kind of been working on it for two years now. So we went over to South Africa to Johannesburg and Cape Town uh, with a charity called In Place of War and a guys over there called Kalakuta and recorded a whole bunch of musicians, brought the stuff back here, then worked with uh, a bunch of musicians here, so people like uh, Tony Allen from Kalakuta's mm -hmm. band on drums and Shabaka Hutchins and uh, Tendalonius Ed playing flute, Tamar playing sax and Joe Armand Jones playing keyboards and we're in the process of editing, mixing, putting mm -hmm. that together. So that's going to be a new project wow. coming out sort of sometime next year. So it's exciting for us. It's been a lot of fun working with proper musicians. Yeah. <laughs> not not ourselves. Well, you, you are. It's just it's a different <laughs> instrument. But yeah, yeah, I know what you mean, like traditional you know, instruments. Yeah, proper. Yeah. You know, that combination of electronics and sampling and, and, and real musicians is, is fascinating and a lot of fun to do. I Cannot wait to hear that. And uh, would you like to choose a song to, to play out the Moving Sound Show? Yes. Well, it seemed appropriate, as I mentioned, this was a South African project, that we end with a South African musician and the daddy, really, for me, of all South African musicians, which is... Well, I know him as Dollar Brand, but a lot of people know him as Abdullah Abraham and this track called The Mountain. Okay. Thanks a lot.